Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Still to be joined right now by Joe Lemire. Joe is the senior writer at Sport Techie and a contributor on MLB Network as well. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ross. Well, Joe, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I had much choice in the matter. My, my, my grandfather was a uh, a standout high school player in, in the Boston area growing up, uh, so much so that he played some tournaments at Fenway Park. Uh, you know, story, uh, the family legend at least has it that I think he had a tryout with the Red Sox before World War II uh, and, uh, you know, before serving our country. He came back with a, a purple heart and uh, a new career path. Um, but uh, his love of the game kind of infused the, the whole family. Uh, my parents' first date was to, to Fenway Park during the 1967 Impossible Dream season. And, uh, you know, kind of kind of went from there. So, uh, you know, by the time I made my first pilgrimage to, to Fenway at the age of four and Jim Rice waved to me as he left the players parking lot, I, I was pretty I was pretty hooked. Uh, Don Baylor hit a grand slam in that game. And, uh, you know, one of the, the few memories I think I really have from when I was four uh, were some some snapshots from from that game. Uh, so it kind of kind of built from there. And uh, here I am. Were you a collector as a kid? Did you collect baseball cards or autographs or anything like that? Yeah, not not so much on the autographs. I had a few, um, but uh, definitely my, my father is a uh, a pretty big amateur card collector. Who uh, the the internet has made him, uh, you know, kind of given him a, a second wind uh, now that he has you know eBay and Yahoo auctions and all these other places to kind of supplement. Uh, you know his uh, his his collection. Uh, he um, and kind of so through him, uh, I've definitely you know compiled a decent amount and. and gain some of his uh, love and, and passion for that. It's kind of been on, on hold for a little while uh, myself, but I know my dad's one of those who has one of those t-shirts that says, I'd be a millionaire if my mother hadn't thrown out my baseball card collection. Um, so he had, had, a, had a whole slew of those wonderful 50s and 60s cards from way back that he's trying to piecemeal recreate now, and it's uh, been, been, been a joy to see him do that. I want to ask you about something that happened yesterday. Some sad news broke yesterday. Roy Halladay died prematurely at the age of 40 in a plane accident. I wanted to get your thoughts on if you ever covered Roy or had any stories about Roy and what your memories of Roy Halladay are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I started covering baseball full-time in, you know, in the sort of 2008, 2009, uh, and especially by 2010 uh, onward. And and so really the, the height of the Roy Halliday's peak. Um, it was always a joy to see him pitch. It just his his precision on the mound, his, his passion um, for the game, and his incredible work ethic. Sort of, uh, I remember the first time I went to a Blue Jay spring training. I think it was the year that he had just left, and uh, you know, the, but the Blue Jays still kind of spoke about him reverentially, almost as if he was in the next room. Like, well, Roy told us about doing it this way, so that's how we do it. I mean, he really set this tone that kind of lasted there. Um, that you know really made an incredible impression. Um, and to be honest, my, my one sort of personal story about him is he he gave the the greatest and most earnest reason for ever declining an interview. It was a uh, it was a President's Day during spring training, and so it was a day off from for the kids from school. And I went up to him after the workout and asked, "Hey, you know, do you have a few minutes to chat?" And he said, "No, I'm really sorry. My kids are home from school, and I promised I'd take them to a matinee movie." Uh, and I know a, a lot of the remembrances of him in the, the last day have been uh, about how much of a, a family man he was. And that kind of speaks right to it, how, how dedicated he was. Uh, and he surely will be missed both as a, as a man and a pitcher. 
I want to ask you about the 2017 season just in general. Obviously, the World Series just concluded with the Astros winning, coming from a, a situation where they were historically bad for a few years and coming back to win. But I'm curious, just your overall thoughts on the season, how you think the 2017 Major League season will be remembered? Yeah, I think we'll remember it as, you know, the, we'll remember primarily for the two teams that made the World Series and for the that long Indians winning streak. I mean, I think uh, it was one of the years with the least amount of parity I think we've seen in a while. Um, you know, we certainly haven't, you know, 100 win teams, these like so-called super teams have been increasingly rare the last few years. And we had three of them kind of rise up and, and the Nationals were, were pretty close. And I think there was a, a pretty clear best four teams uh in baseball with those with those clubs and i think you know you know there's going to be some prognostications that maybe we're going to start to seeing a, a widening gap you know amongst uh, you know smart front offices and those with with good amounts of money because these you know if you add in sort of that next tier you've got the you know cubs red sox yankees i mean you are seeing a lot of the the very big money teams um start to do very well right now um I don't know if that's going to persist. Uh, I think obviously a lot of this becomes pretty cyclical, um, but I, I do think the the teams that were in contention this year are all pretty well suited for at least for next year, if not a little bit beyond. So um, those that are in the, the rebuilding process probably should be looking forward toward 2019, 2020 a bit. Uh, but I, I do think the Astros uh, and the Cubs kind of winning back to back also just reinforces what a, uh, you know, what this, you know, whether you want to call it tanking or just like a full throttle rebuild can do. I, I think that tear it down to the very bare bones strategy really seems to be uh, what, 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 what works. Uh, and under the current system, under the current collective bargaining agreement with the way that draft pick money uh, and international free agent money is allotted, uh, I think some those were some very smart front offices that took full advantage of uh, what was offered to them. Um, I think it's also interesting that the Brewers were in the process of doing that, and I think probably surprised even themselves by winning 86 games. But you're seeing a, a lot of, um, you know, the Atlanta Braves are another team that did that. Um, you know, they finished third. They finished ahead of the Mets um, in that division this year. Um, and obviously they've had some front office turmoil this year, and it'll be remains to be seen how that will get sorted out and what sanctions might happen and if any of the, the amateur players they've collected um, – might not be uh, in their system any longer. And if so, that might set them back. But I think they're another team that's very much on the rise. Um, so I think we're seeing this new blueprint emerge that, you know, at least for now, uh, is going to be pretty successful. We saw a record number of home runs hit this year. There's been a lot of work by Ben Lindbergh and Rob Arthur and Alan Nathan suggesting that something is different with the ball. I'm curious if you think that's a trend that's here to stay. Do you think we're going to see another increase in home runs as the seasons go forward? We very well might. Uh, it's interesting to see how cyclical the game has been, because even just in 2014 and 2015, we saw record numbers of ground balls. Uh, you know, it's not something that got made too much of. People, you know, we were focused a lot on, on the on the strike zone and the strikeouts, um, but really, pitchers were, were pounding the bottom of the strike zone so much. Uh, that you know, hitters had to adjust and start to try to find a way to hit that pitch and hit it effectively. Because at the same time, as pitchers getting these hollow below the hollow of the knee, pitches called for strikes. Hitters had to put them in play, or else they were going to strike out. Uh, and at the same time, all these extra exaggerated infield shifts were coming into play. So it was really a a bad confluence of events to be a hitter. Uh, and so really, 
hitting the ball hard and in the air seemed to be the only way to tr- try to beat that. And, you know, I think it, the, the Sandy Alderson recently espoused this theory to me that, you know, his theory on a lot of this home run surge sort of related to this, that, you know, now that we also have all this stat cast data of exit velocity and launch angle, hitters are realizing that trying to hit a ground ball the opposite way to beat a shift for a single just overall isn't going to be as effective and produce the same kind of results as hitting the ball hard and in the air over the shift. Uh, and so as a result, we're seeing, you know, there's obviously been a lot of talk about the, the three true outcomes of walk strikeouts and, and home runs. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're swinging at these pitches and swinging hard to do damage, you're going to have a lot more home runs, but you're also going to have a lot more strikeouts. And so right now, I don't see that abating in the next year or two. I think eventually pitchers will adjust, and I think some smart teams like the Astros and a few others are trying to suddenly, uh, you know, hit the top of the zone with some forcing fastballs a bit more, and that's a, a much tougher pitch for a, a hitter to get use that kind of an uppercut swing and elevate it out of the park. Um, so I think that kind of back and forth adjustment is is going to keep happening, but sometimes it takes really a year or two or three for you know to see these league wide trends emerge and enough of a consensus of hitters or pitchers making adjustments and realizing what they should do. So it wouldn't surprise me at all for over six thousand home runs again next season, uh, like we were for the first time in 2017. Um, but uh, you know it probably won't continue uh, completely unchecked. Uh, it just remains to be seen what what the pitchers will do. One of the things that we saw a lot in the playoffs was bullpenning, going to bullpen sooner. People were wondering if this might be a trend that could carry over to the regular season. More difficult when there are games every day and you can't tax bullpens that much during the regular season. But do you think that more, do you think reliever usage will change as we go forward beyond just the one inning mark from star relievers? Yeah, you know, as you said, I think it's going to be a much slower, almost kind of migration forward for for bullpen usage. Um, but uh, you know, the way that it has been that the average starter, you know, even a few years ago, was at least going six innings. Now I think it's for a few years in a row, it's been a little bit under six, uh, and that's going to, you know, all the data shows that the third time through the lineup has become a a, a real real thicket for a, for a pitcher. And you know, I've studied a, one of my peak areas of interest in, in baseball research is sort of the overall uh, aggregate trends uh, kind of by innings and sort of lineup rotations. And so that sixth inning is almost always the second highest scoring inning um, of a game every year. So you can actually, you know, even for, for fans, if you want to know when to go to the bathroom, you should go in the second inning because it's almost always going to be the bottom of the lineup and there aren't many runs scored in the second inning. But the first inning usually has the most runs because you're setting that top of the lineup and, you know, maybe there's some effect of a pitcher still warming up and getting ready. But that sixth inning is where that lineup, the, the middle of the lineup, usually bats for a third time based on the average base runners per inning. Plus, it's about where the starting pitcher is getting to around 100 pitches. And, you know, that third time through, you, you, you know what the pitcher has. You're, 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 you know, your eyes are, are locked in. You've got that muscle memory down. Uh, and so that's why the sixth inning ends up becoming um, such such a, a, a tricky spot that I've, a few major league pitchers have told me that the first and sixth inning are referred to as the terrible twos. Uh, those are the ones that you need to be particularly mindful of. And I think increasingly we're going to start seeing you know managers go to the bullpen in that sixth inning. And and the way that bullpens are now, you know, even the sixth guy in a bullpen is still pumping 95 plus it seems. And so we're not just throwing in some random long man in the sixth inning. I wrote because it's the middle of the game and we should throw our worst reliever when it's not a high quote unquote high leverage situation in the eighth or ninth inning. But sometimes those are high leverage situations. And I think teams are being a little more creative about role usage 
And so I think we're going to start seeing more quality relievers enter the game, you know, in the middle innings if if that's where there's a fire that needs to be extinguished. One of the things that I wonder, and I wonder where if this is something that where we could be headed, is the idea of having a designated starter almost. The idea that you have your best reliever that sort of comes in in the eighth or the ninth inning. Well, what if you have your second best reliever start the game, essentially? You know he's going to face the three or four best hitters in the lineup, and then you bring your starter in. Uh, you get a starter to come in, hopefully ideally clean, in the second inning, and that extends how long he could go into the game. I, I don't know. It's not the most aesthetically pleasing thing, but I feel like it. I feel like that would be an efficient use of relievers as well. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea, and it seems to make a, a good amount of sense. I think uh, you know the National League it might be a little trickier. You probably want that sort of quote-unquote starting reliever to go two innings so you can you know pinch hit for him on the first time in the lineup and then allow the the starter to come in without having that at bat but um, I think you're going to start seeing you know you know obviously teams like the Tampa Bay Rays kind of stand out on this I mean if anyone's going to do it to be really creative and be willing to to buck tradition it it could be them Um, and I think there's going to be a a bit more you know outside the box thinking uh, you know in, in the coming years. I want to get your thoughts quickly before we get onto your piece about the top tech stories in baseball this year. It was a really good piece. I wanted to talk to you about that. But I want to get your thoughts on award season as we're about to get the MVP award winners and the Cy Young award winners. Who do you think should win and who do you think will win in each league this year? Oh, geez. Um, a, a tough one to uh, start right off the, the right off the top here. Um, well, I, I do think in, with the American League MVP, it certainly will come down to Al- Altuve and, and Judge. Uh, I think... You know, even though the postseason, the postseason of course doesn't count, but even just based on the regular season uh, credentials, I think it's time that Jose Altuve uh, is given that award. Um, you just overall production consistently throughout the year. Um, you know, it's uh, amazing that someone like Mike Trout gets so taken uh, for granted that even with missing all that time, he still ranks so highly and couldn't even make the top three. But I guess it's voter fatigue or, or something like that. Uh, I think the NL MVP. Uh, I think. Joey Votto had his, uh, I think even he uh, called it his piece de resistance uh, of his career. I, I think it was his his best season. Um, and I do think that it's it's time that he, he received another MVP award. Um, AL Cy Young, it's going to be a, a Kluber versus Sale. Um, I see Kluber probably getting the award in part just because of the, the way the, the team finished a bit better than the Red Sox did. But um, I, I personally think Sale might have had a slightly over better better overall season um, in the National League. Kershaw, Scherzer, Strasburg—hard uh, to hard to pick one of those. Um, I think it's probably going to be um, Scherzer uh, just because he did eclipse the 200 innings. AL manager—it's uh, again. <laughs> the manager is sort of the hardest one, as we all know, to, to actually pick to, to have an idea of. Uh, really the uh, impact they've had but you know with Francona and Hinch there's there's really no wrong answer there um, I, I think uh, Francona's overall reputation means that he'll probably get that uh, in the National League um, I, you know with uh, Black, Lavulo and, and Roberts clearly it's a, a year for the NL West um, I think uh, you know any of those three would be plenty deserving um, I, I think probably that uh, the Rockies and Diamondbacks exceeded expectations the most and that often uh, impresses voters, so uh, I think Lavulo might be the, the nod there. Um, AL Rookie of the Year is a slam dunk for Aaron Judge, and, and NL Rookie of the Year is quite obviously going to be Cody Bellinger. Uh, but there's enough intrigue in, in some of those top-of-the-ballot uh, awards with the MVP and Cy Young that it should be fun to watch. 
I want to discuss your piece that's on Sport Techie right now. People can find it on sporttechie.com and, and through links on your Twitter page. But you had the nine most important tech stories of Major League Baseball this year. I want to start right at the top. Number one, you had Launch Angle. And Launch Angle is something we hear about now in highlights, and it's in StatCast. But one of the things that I was so surprised with Launch Angle is how quickly players are adapting their swings to it. What are your thoughts on how Launch Angle is affecting the game? Yeah, absolutely. It's had a, a huge effect. It, and actually, um, uh, at a previous job, uh, I was working at a, a small site called Vocative and wrote a story there uh, that ran in early June that um, found, while well, asking around the game, how much, how many of the players knew these terms, knew what they meant. Um, and it be, sort of became clear that a lot of, you know, if you talk to the executives and the coaches, they, they would tell you that it's not like they're teaching anything different, but the they're able to distill the information more quickly and have it crystallized in the hitter's mind better because the hitters now have these terms that are permeating into their daily discourse. And they're seeing those highlights that you mentioned that have the stat cast infused numbers uh, and metrics put into it. Um, and so it just kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, swing with a little bit of an uppercut. You know, what are you really, how, how are you trying to, how much of an uppercut? Well, now there's like a good number you can attach to that and realize like, all right, this is what I'm aiming for. This is what I'm trying to do. And there are any number of fitters from Ryan Zimmerman to Yonder Alonso this year to, you know, Josh Donaldson, Daniel Murphy, and J.D. Martinez in, in years pre prior that have all had Mar and Justin Turner have all had market improvements by elevating the ball more consistently. And some of the, the research that you mentioned at the top of the show about, uh, uh, you know, the ball composition, um, you know, might have something to do with this as well. And it, that kind of remains, it seems like there's some empirical evidence that there's uh, something going on, how much that of an impact that's really having. It's hard to say, but it is clear that hitters are certainly more conscious of, of making, uh, making upward contact and, and really trying to do damage. And I really think, uh, I really think it's made it a, a huge advantage in just the, the mindset of what guys are, are trying to do with the plate. A few years ago, when ESPN put Brandon McCarthy on their magazine, they did the profile on him and how he used sabermetrics to sort of reinvent his career. One of the things that, that stood out to me in that piece was that he was doing this on his own. This wasn't coming from the direction of coaches, and he was really isolated in doing this. But with launch angle and with some of these StatCast metrics, it seems like even the coaches are embracing this as well. Yeah, they're, they're realizing this is a, a new tool they can use to, to communicate. And um, a few years ago, I was uh, writing for USA Today and did a, a piece where, you know, the, the it's amazing how much we hear almost every day about some new stat or some new way of looking at the game. Uh, and this was 2015 that I was writing the story. And it was amazing how little of it at the time seemed to actually be trickling down to the players. And it's because they have so much to worry about with their nutrition and their workouts and the actual and the scouting reports of uh, of opponents, um, there's only so much they can digest and still perform that day. You know, the whole paralysis by analysis is, it can be a real thing if guys are overthinking what the the percentages might say. And so, uh, in many ways, the the, the coaches uh, have had to add, add on this extra role of being a sabermetric interpreter. They, they have to sort of filter out the the noise and really uh, communicate only what's most important to the hitters um, or the pitchers. And even guys, uh, you know, Andrew Miller is about as progressive uh, of a mind as there is who can, who knows what, you know, fan graphs, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, out of zone percentages are. I mean, he, he he's someone who, who reads up on this and gets it. But even he says, 
he doesn't want too much of that from his coach because it's just going to be too much information when he's actually on the mound. Um, you know, the, the, the coaches have to cater this to each individual player. Do I tell this player player with numbers and percentages? Do I, sh- you know, for a lot of them, visuals worked well. And so the, you know, those um, heat charts were a very good way of, of bringing um, tools uh, to them. Um, but the fact that, you know, exit velocity and launch angles just became so pervasive so quickly, um, it's just another tool, another, uh, you know, verbal uh, cue that they can use for hitters to, uh, you know, to, to, to get their optimal performance. Number two on your list was virtual reality. I think this is really interesting. It's it's advancing games and video games, but it's also going to enhance life at some point here. I feel like the real world is going to become Lawnmower Man at some point here, but uh, we are at a point where you hit on like two major uses. One is basically being broadcast in virtual reality, so I'm curious what the fan perspective is, if they're actually wearing a headset, what they're seeing as a fan in a, in a broadcast form, and the other is in training. Can you hit on both of those for a little bit? Intel, um, beginning, I think it was in June, did, started doing a, a weekly national game in virtual reality, and, uh, and, and Nesson did a few regional broadcasts just for Red Sox games, but um, using the, the same technology. And it is, you do need to use the, 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 the headset with the Samsung Gear um, technology. Um, and so you do have to put the headset on. Uh, and Intel is pretty, uh, was pretty upfront while explaining the technology and showing how, it use, how it's used that they don't expect this someone to put this headset on and watch a four-hour game entirely in that. But they see it as, you know, almost every sport and baseball lends itself well to it. Um, you know, it wants to have that second screen engagement, that, um, you know, companion, um, you know, tool to, to keep people entertained. And, and, and virtual reality is a pretty good one. And so I was, it was a, a Mets Diamondbacks game in, in August that I had a chance to, to, to watch some of it and see the, the truck where they produce it all. And, I think they had, for that one they had five, you know, virtual reality, five of the camera stations around the ballpark, and each one and had a you know a couple of cameras you know to have the binocular view that you need to have to to replicate a uh, human vision. Um, but one of them and I thought was most interesting was actually parked right near the Arizona Diamondbacks. You know, they're visiting dugout, um, and so at times it would kind of that would be the the view, you know, for the most part you could as the viewer could choose which camera you wanted to watch. And so you didn't have to follow what the director's cut was. And that, that was offered, you know, Intel made sure that there was a director's cut because some people wouldn't want to be so proactive. They'd rather just be a passive viewer. But if you wanted to be more proactive, you could pick which camera advantage point and you could start to see some hidden insights you normally wouldn't see in a game, you know, unless you were at a, at the ballpark and sitting in a particular seat and whether it was down the right field line or sitting near third base, you could just watch the game from that viewpoint. Um, but the, as I was alluding to the, the one by the dugout was particularly interesting because, you know, at one point Paul Goldschmidt just when he was, you know, in the hole about to go out to the on deck circle, you know, he was conferring with AJ Pollock, you know, you can't you couldn't hear what he was saying, but it was clear they were talking about what the I think it was. Um, oh, it doesn't um, doesn't really matter who was pitching, but what he was throwing that particular day. Um, and then you saw Goldschmidt starting with warm up swings, and he's someone who's known for driving the ball the opposite way. And sure enough, he was sort of doing an exaggerated inside out swing in the dugout. You know, um, he was conferring with his with his hitting coach, and you just start to see a little bit more that unless you had a really good seat near the dugout, you, know, you wouldn't really be able to see in the dugout during a game very much. And this was uh, a particularly interesting vantage point in providing real access that the, the viewer wouldn't normally get. Um, uh, I think there are some, some limitations uh, with like how good the, the, the quality is of, of, you know, that would make you want to watch for so long. But, but as a, an occasional break 
uh, as an occasional new uh, vantage point. It was pretty interesting. Um, as for training, uh, teams have been pretty guarded about a lot of the specifics, but the Tampa Bay Rays have acknowledged that they've been using virtual reality for a few years now. Um, and, and those same Diamondbacks mentioned that they were um, studying it pretty seriously and looking at a few vendors, uh, hopefully for bringing somebody on board next year. Um, and a lot of these these companies that are providing virtual reality put a huge amount of time and expense into making sure that the they, they're really replicating the mechanics of a pitcher to provide uh, you know the kind of uh, you know muscle memory, eye memory that you you really need in order to prepare for a pitcher that you've never seen before and see how his pitch moves. And um, uh, I spoke with Monsterful's uh, CEO um, Jarrett Sims. His father, Dave Sims, has been a longtime Mariners broadcaster, and you know they made, they have a, a very impressive board advising him. You know, including guys like Dusty Baker and Lloyd McClendon, who've been around the game a long time. And um, and there is their big push is all about using the data. Um, for creating the the pitcher models, and they'll have graphic artists kind of mimic some like grips on the pitches and such. But they want to make sure that the pitch movements um, and velocities and all that is done exclusively through data to make it as realistic as possible. Uh, and you know, there's making sure the technology runs so smoothly, so there's no real latency, so it really acts and feels like a real time 95 mile an hour pitch or a real 78 mile an hour curveball with a 10 inch break. Um, it's uh, it's an exciting technology. It's with it's hard to know um, how effective it will be, but there certainly seems to be a lot of potential. The third thing on your list is augmented reality, which is a, a different thing entirely. This is a big thing right now in science and medical fields as well. Also, as a part of gaming, we saw this be a big thing a few years ago or last year with Pokemon uh, in the augmented reality game there. How is Major League Baseball using augmented reality not just to enhance player performance but fan experience at the ballpark? Yeah, the, the big um, augmented reality experience that we saw was when Apple had its big keynote highlighting uh, new features. You know, they even um, Major League Baseball's a bad app, and its advanced media program have always been pretty cutting edge. And uh, and the big one here is, you know, if you're at the ballpark, you can hold up your phone during the game, and then in real time, uh, the the your phone is able to check where each player is. Um, so you're say you're sitting down the third base line at a um, at, a, at a Washington Nationals game, and you know you hold it up, and there's Anthony Rendon, uh, Rendon, and you know, it'll call up his name, his you know a lot of some brief stats that might be helpful. It'll show like what his uh, his range might be while playing third base, um, any any kind of advanced stat cast metric or basic you know fielding numbers you might want would be there. Um, you know, and if say the Philadelphia Phillies are up and, and Hoskins is at at the plate, you know. You, all of a sudden, a lot of his his hitting stats can be immediately accessible. Um, it, it's really a, a pretty pretty interesting and eye opening uh, you know amount of technology that could be used to enhance that fan experience. Um, and you know, I think they're they're really planning on rolling it out next year uh, in in much larger fashion than just the the quick demos they did this year. So it remains to be seen how helpful and how useful it'll be, and how much fans actually gravitate toward it. But um, it seems, seems pretty interesting. We're not going to have time to get to the entire list. People can find it on sporttechie.com. But I do want to ask you about the last thing that you had, number nine, which was the scandal between the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Apple Watch scandal and stealing signs. How much were the Red Sox actually able to get? How were they doing this anyway? And was it helpful to them at all? Uh, hard to know. Uh, it seemed from, from the re- reports that were out there is that a, a coach would be watching on on video and send a message, you know, through to a smartwatch in the dugout 
and what was sort of amusing about the whole thing is everyone quickly branded it the Apple Watch scan because that's what they assumed it was using, but turns out it was a, a Fitbit model. Um, so we're still left wondering what uses Apple Watch actually has. Um, and then from there, the, the coach would have a, a player uh, signal it out to someone on second base who could then relay it into the hitter. So it's still a multiple-step communication process of, of explaining what the signs would be. Uh, I think some of the numbers showed that when the Red Sox were playing the Yankees, they, at least early on, had some success when a hitter was on second base, a little bit better than they normally would. Um, but just because you know a, a 95-mile-an-hour fastball is coming in a particular location doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hit it and, and do something something good with it. So, um, you know, sign stealing can, can certainly give an advantage, but, um, you know, you still have to execute it at the end of the day. So uh, I think that one probably was not as as big of a deal as it got made except for the sort of humorous way in, in which the uh, trin, uh, transgression was made. Yeah, I don't think that would have been national news if that wasn't uh, Red Sox-Yankees involved. But one of the things that was interesting that came out of that was that there are no rules in place against stealing signs with your eyes, but you cannot do it using equipment. And I wonder if that's something, or technology, and I wonder if that's something that uh, Major League Baseball is going to have to revisit this offseason. Yeah, they're um, pretty keen on not having some sort of arms race on electronics and technology. I mean, they have enough areas where, uh, you know, with free agent bidding and such, where teams are already outspending each other. The last thing they want to do is open Pandora's box and have that kind of uh, arms race in, in so many different areas of the game. And so I think it's going to stick to the old-fashioned way of, look, if, you know, if you're able to decipher the sign and, and do something with it, more power to you. Uh, but if you're using outside means, uh, that's where the line gets drawn. I think that I think that one will probably stay in place. You've been listening to Joe Lemire. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lemire Joe and find his work at Sport Techie. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.